When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It was there over and over. The most educated and the least educated women have very different sex lives. As for men, the difference is much smaller. Education leads to more sex and more experimentation and trying new things. And we talked about the sexual revolution is the same thing. The scholars who studied that said women changed much more fundamentally than men did. Men were able to do more of the things they wanted after the sexual revolution than before. But their desires were really kind of the same, whereas women's feelings about their bodies and about sex and about accepting desire and so on had a much more fundamental and sweeping change. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Today's guest is psychologist Roy Baumeister. Now, Roy's work has turned up a number of times in my research and my deep dives over the years, and it's little wonder. He's one of the world's most prolific and influential psychologists, and he coined phrases like the negativity bias and decision fatigue. He's also published over 700 scientific works, including over 400 books on why we do stupid things, the psychology of breaking hearts, and why criticism lasts longer than praise. And the list of foibles and fascinations go on. In 2013, Roy received the highest award given by the Association for Psychological Science in recognition of his lifetime achievements. He basically writes about all the things that make us human, and he's responsible for some of the most famous and sometimes contentious studies in contemporary psychology. So if you've read my books or you're just into this kind of thing, you might be aware of morning routines as an example. It's the idea that our willpower and our ability to make smart decisions diminishes the more decisions we make earlier in the day. So the fix is to make less decisions in the morning, i.e. routinize your morning as much as possible. So eat the same breakfast, wear the same outfit, exercise the same time and so on. Well, the science that all of that was based on was Roy Baumeister's. In the late 1980s, he found that willpower was a muscle that needs to be built up, but also if it's overused, it gets exhausted and sees you give in to eating the chocolate bar after a day of dieting, for example. This willpower thesis was cited 3,000 times and it's informed over 1,200 other studies that show why people are, for instance, energised by positive messages, are more likely to engage in retail therapy when brokenhearted 
and are better off tricking themselves into eating less than willfully dieting. It all turned into a New York Times bestselling book, Willpower, in 2011, which then informed the Silicon Valley bros and life hackers to take up, yep, morning routines. It was also Roy's science that inspired Barack Obama to wear the same two suits for the entirety of his presidency. Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, a whole bunch of others, they also wear the same outfit every day and they eat the same boring breakfast every single day based on Roy's science. Me, I write about it in First We Make the Beast Beautiful in a chapter all about how making decisions makes us anxious. And if we're anxious, we can't make decisions. And so an anxiety fix is to not overwork that muscle on pointless decisions like what to eat for breakfast. Despite all this, This willpower thesis also became the focus of a replication controversy that is ongoing to this day. It seems to be a thing at the moment with big blockbuster psychological studies where the methodology of such an imprecise science as psychology is gets picked apart decades down the track. So think the marshmallow experiment and the Stanford prison experiment as examples. They've also been picked apart in recent years. I've covered this in previous episodes and in particular in the weird phenomenon with Joseph Henrik and I'll put that episode in the show notes for you. Now to save myself from exhausting my willpower muscle with too many decisions, I've actually given myself permission in this episode to talk two wild ideas with Roy. The guy ranges too wide not to. I want to pick up on the willpower stuff in the wake of the controversy, but I also want to pick up on one of Roy's more esoteric academic hustles, the economic power of the female orgasm and why the male orgasm is a tragedy, in his words. Okay, but we're going to start this conversation with chocolate and radishes. Roy Bailmaster, thank you so much for joining us on Wild. There is so much to talk about and I have come across a lot of your studies over the years because they're everywhere. You are prolific. But I thought we might kick off with the chocolate and radishes experiment in the late 90s and if I can get you to talk that experiment through and also explain what it established. Well, that was a a formative moment in in my career. I was trying to learn about how people exert self-control, how the self-regulation system works. And back at the time, everyone was thinking in terms of the brain is like a little computer. So all the models were information processing models. Well, when I read actually a lot of the research on self-control, which back then was dieting and quitting smoking and stuff like that, it, it seemed more like it was a muscle that it would periodically get tired that when people were making, were doing too much you know, just like a muscle gets tired, then it doesn't perform as well. So this was one in a series of experiments we did that tested the two against each other. We realized we have people make one self-control task, exert self-control, and then we would test them on a different self-control task. If it's an information processing, you know, a computer is once the program's up and running, it should do better at the the next task. It's all, it's in the self-control mode. So performance should be improved. In contrast, if there's some kind of energy that gets used up or depleted, it's like a muscle getting tired, then after the first task, they should do worse in the second. So this experiment, we had people come to the laboratory. Now, you can't tell people we're going to test your self-control because then they get all nervous and self-conscious and that messes it up. So we have to pretend we're studying something else. We pretended it was an experiment on how people could remember tastes. 
And, and for that, we said, we'd like you to not eat anything for three hours before the experiment. Said, yeah, okay. So they come along and they say they've skipped lunch and they're a little bit hungry. And then I guess the next part was a little bit mean. We, we baked fresh chocolate chip cookies in the lab in a microwave oven and you know how it blows out the, the aroma. And so it smelled so good. Anyway, person comes to our experiment and you know, they're hungry if they haven't eaten for a while, and suddenly it smells all delicious. And then we seated them at a table where there's a tray of all these cookies. And in case they weren't into cookies, we had some chocolates there and, and all that. And also on the table was a, a bowl of radishes. And for some, the experimenter said, well, you're going to be in the radish condition. So what we need you to do is eat a bunch of these radishes and don't, don't touch the, the cookies or the chocolates. They're, they're for other people in the experiment. So we left them alone for a couple of, well, for about six, six minutes, I think it was. Of course, we didn't trust them as we wanted to see what they did. So we secretly observed. And sure enough, there were a lot of longing glances at the cookies and people would pick them up and sniff them and put them back, stuff like that. But, but nobody ate the forbidden food and everybody managed to eat at least two thirds of a radish. And now we had two control groups, one where there was no food involved and one where we told to eat the chocolates and not the radishes. That doesn't take much self-control. But the ones we're interested in were the ones who had to sit there seeing the cookies and smelling the cookies and wanting the cookies and instead had to resist that temptation and make themselves eat those stupid radishes. So so we've manipulated, you know, that should use up some of their self-control or it should get the self-control module into high gear. Then we took them to another room where there was no food or anything like that. And this procedure we borrowed from stress researchers is how long do you keep trying at a difficult problem before you give up? So we gave them some puzzles to do. They're actually unsolvable because it would have messed up the experiment if people solved them. We wanted to see how long did they go before they quit. And the finding was that the, the, the people who had used up some of their willpower resisting that, that temptation the people in the radish condition who had to not eat the, the cookies, they quit much faster than the other people. So doing that task, resisting the temptation, took something out of them that they no longer had that would help them keep going and keep trying, persevering in the face of failure. Yeah, it was pre-revolutionary stuff at the time. And it then went on to inform hundreds, literally hundreds of studies down the track that looked at all kinds of other behaviours. Are there a couple of really interesting applications that you could share with us of this science? Okay, application is, I'm, I'm sort of a basic science person. We didn't do as much of the applications ourselves, but since then I've seen it applied to Oh, like healthcare workers who, as the day gets on and they get depleted, stop bothering to wash their hands between patients. You know, they're supposed to do it between each one. Or physicians being, they know they're not supposed to prescribe antibiotics all the time. And people come in and say, oh, give me antibiotics, please. And so early in the day, they say, no, it's, it's, it's bad practice to overprescribe those. But again, as they get depleted, they're more likely to say, okay, I'll give you some antibiotics. Some of the recent work that's interesting, some of my colleagues in Europe have been doing sports with this. And there's some nice tests where they'll have people do these self-control exercises, sort of mental exercises for 20, 30 minutes, and then go outside and play soccer or basketball or whatever. And they play worse. They make more fouls. They miss more shots. They make more just physical blunders. So again, you deplete the willpower with a mental task, and but it shows up in, in your, your physical task. That 
that has implications too. It sort of means that it's what we call a domain general resource, which means one resource for everything. Because some people say, well, I have good self-control for cleaning my apartment, but not so good at meeting deadlines and getting my work done on time or vice versa. Well, it all comes out of the same pot. It's one resource. And if you wanted, you could probably do it the others, but it is limited. So you can choose to expend it on one thing or on, or on something else, but you can understand why people think they're better at one thing than another. I know that the idea was applied to judges in courtrooms. It was much better to get a judge in the morning rather than after lunch. You know, you you can get a far more favourable or accurate sentence or judgment. Yes, yes. This group of researchers, I know the guy at New York University, Jonathan Lavov, he's now at Stanford. He was able to get a large number of these judges' decisions. And it looks like they get harsher as the day wears on because the easy thing to do is just ah, send them back. Uh, it, it makes the judge look bad if they get out and, and commit another crime. Mm. And it, it gets worse and worse. It's interesting, an extension of the theory at this time is uh, we found it was tied into the body's energy supply so that uh, food may actually replenish it because it gives you more of your body's basic energy. And so right after lunch, the judges are more thoughtful and lenient again. There was also a mid-morning break when they get a an hour off and they get a banana or something. And there, there was a, a slight rise. I tell my students, I hope you're never in trouble. But if you do and you come up for parole, last one before lunch, say, oh, go ahead and have lunch. I'll talk to yes. you lunch because the, Get some glucose into you. This is not, also not my work, but Kathleen Voss had these papers showing that people will spend more money impulsively when they're depleted. And that's that's something to know about. You should say, don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry. Well, don't go to the grocery store after you've expended a lot of willpower making decisions or resisting temptation or whatever. Yeah, it's very much fed into the decision theory stuff that's been circulating for a number of years. And I cover it in one of my books, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, showing that when we make too many decisions, it actually taxes our ability to modulate anxiety And um, flip side, if we're anxious, we then find it very difficult to make decisions. And that's really a lived experience for most people with anxiety. Decisions can be their undoing. So that's how I actually first came across your work was in relation to that. But I think, look, there's a two-way thing going on here, isn't there? There's the idea that it's almost like a muscle that we can exhaust and then it you know, mm-hmm. means that we're not making great decisions or we're not able to use our willpower for the things we need it for. But there's also the argument that we can build the muscle, much like a physical muscle. What is, I don't know, three life hacks, and I'm not a big fan of life hacks, but for the sake of this conversation, what are some techniques that we can apply that can build that muscle so that we are better able to modulate our willpower okay. abilities? Sure. Well, remember, it's one muscle, so you can do anything to build it up and it'll work for anything else. It will generalize to to other tasks. So a lot of these experiments have been done showing showing good effects. We did some, other people have done them. The first one we did that worked was a very simple thing. We had people work on their posture. We said for two weeks, every time you think of it, stand up straight, sit up straight and, and kind of keep a log so you can see actually so we could see whether they were doing it or not. Because if you don't do the exercises, you don't get, get stronger, of course. And then on a lab test that had nothing to do with posture, they did, they did better. In other procedures, self-control is basically overriding. You have an automatic impulse or a desire to do something. So self-control is to override that so you can do something else. 
in a sense, it's one of the foundations of what people call free will. So we'd say, well, just take things that are habitual and break them. So if the person was right-handed, we'd say, all right, for the next week, whenever you think of it, use your left hand to open doors, mm. to drink from a cup, to use the computer mouse, to brush your teeth. It doesn't, again, matter what exactly you choose, but as long as they have a habitual tendency to do it with the right hand and they override that to use their left hand. Now, the exercise doesn't work forever because after a while it'll become habitual to use your left hand. And when once it becomes automatic, then it's not using self-control anymore. Other ones we used were verbal. That you know, Look at the way you talk and maybe try to, to change it. If you, if you swear a lot, try making yourself not swear. Use the full name for things rather than go to the uni mm. or, or what a uni. Use the full word and the full name. Uh, again, it's just sort of watching yourself, seeing you're about to do something and then making yourself do something different. I call it the George Costanza theory. I don't know if you know that Seinfeld episode, Roy, where mm. he breaks his yeah. habitual pattern of just being slightly obnoxious or actually fully obnoxious to women, but trying to please them and do the right thing. And he does the opposite and winds up getting dates, which is an interesting one. Yeah. And I actually write about that as well. I'm aware of the science that stemmed from your original studies that talk about that. I think Gretchen Rubin, a psychologist in the US, has written about this quite a lot. And one of her most significant popular theories is sleep at the other end of the bed. You know, it can actually just shift things around, break up your patterning and actually get you more okay. point for the rest of the day. Well, sleeping... You know, is not a self-control task, and you're, you're usually asleep. But you know, at least for the moment of turning around to the other end, that would do something. You know, a lot of people ask me for advice at New Year's because New Year's resolutions are famous for, hmm. for failing. And I say, well, most of them take self-control. And if you're trying to do all these different things, implement all these different changes, your willpower is going to be divided among all of them. And I don't want to say don't do it because I believe in self-improvement, but do them in sequence. I say start with the easiest one and do that until you've got it down. And that will strengthen you. That will make you better. And then move on to the next one and, and keep the really difficult ones like quitting smoking, if that's your thing, until the last when you've already built up some strength exerting self-control in these other areas. Yeah, it's just like going to the gym. You don't start with 35 kilo weights. You start with five right. kilo hand weights and build from yes. there. That makes a hell of a lot of sense. Now, with this science, I know that, you know, it was you were doing the experiments in about 1996. You then wrote a book that became a New York Times bestseller called Willpower in 2011. But about eight years ago, there was a study done that, you know, essentially suggested that the, the original study couldn't be accurately replicated. And this is happening quite a lot in psychology, of course. The marshmallow experiment has been questioned somewhat, the Stanford prison mm -hmm. experiment as well. It seems to be a thing at the moment. Um, and look, we don't have to go into it too much because, of course, it's largely unresolved out there in the community. But I'm just wondering, first of all, uh, do you stand by the original science? Do you still think it holds up? Uh, the failures to replicate never did any of my original experiments, they, they copied one other. See, for these these big replications, they want something that's really convenient so a lot of people can do it. 
So they called me before they did, and I said, well, try the radish and chocolate study. That worked real well. And they said, oh, that's too much trouble and, and so on. Somebody so might burn the chocolate cookies in one of the experiments and that'll stuff it all up. I remember reading that. I mean, well, just don't burn the cookies or do another batch, you know. Well, but you have to have a laboratory and you they want to do everything online. You have to have people come in. You have to have the cookies and bake them. It, 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 it's a bit of a production. So people are trying to do it, and, and this is true. I've, I've read all the multi-lab replication attempts in social psychology. There are 36 of them. We just published a, a summary of them. There are only four that worked. One of those was an ego depletion one. This was a second one after the first one. But the first one, you see, a lot of these, they fail to what we call to manipulate the independent variable. So you're trying to test the effects of anxiety. So you randomly make some people anxious and others not. Okay, you have a high anxiety treatment and a low anxiety treatment. But if you then ask them, and it turns out your high anxiety treatment, they're not anxious, then you, you don't learn anything about anxiety. You won't replicate the original effect. That appears to be what's happened for most of the, the failures mm. to, to replicate ego depletion. Meanwhile, it's been replicated successfully probably about 800 times. There are, The last time somebody counted, it was six or 700, and that was five years ago. Yes. It's been done on all continents, not Antarctica, but you know all the continents that are doing mm. social psychology research. And it's not like being lucky that it, by chance it worked out that way. There, there are no findings in the opposite direction. So some people fail to get it, but it's usually, again, because, again, the depleted people aren't really more depleted. They try to do it with five minutes. That's why I said my, my colleagues in France who are looking doing it with sports, they'll have the people sit and do these tasks for half an hour. If you want to, I mean, it's a kind of fatigue. And obviously the effects are bigger the more you work people and the more tired they get. It's the same with physical muscles. You know, a lot of things might not work when you're just slightly tired after yeah. three minutes of jogging or something. But after an hour of jogging, phew, the effects will be bigger. I think there's a good case. It's the best replicated finding in social psychology. And I have published that and we got that through the review process. I mean, you can argue and there might be a couple others, but again, there are only four that have had successful results with these multi-lab replications. You go to is one of them. Two of them are fairly yeah. minor. There's another big one. Yeah, I'm wondering, Roy, if this has got a little bit to do with the impact of technology in the attention economy. Distraction is at an all-time high. And I'm wondering if the way that both we do these experiments and how respondents engage in the experiments has shifted because our attention has changed so much in the last 10 years. Is that something that you think might have a part to play in all of this, particularly when we're talking willpower, right, and self-control? Well, I don't know how it would affect willpower. If people are more distractible, that might make them more subject to being depleted. But what you're talking about is a, is a a real phenomenon, as far as I can tell. And yes, people, in fact, I even notice it with myself, the, the way I live now. I, I can concentrate for as long periods of time as I could. Early in my career, when I was was time to write my books and papers, I, I was in an office where there was no contact with the outside world. I had no television. There was no internet then. I couldn't hear the doorbell. So I could really build ideas in my mind and work on them, which is, you know, to write a, a scientific paper or a book, that's the kind of focus that you need. And now with email coming in all the time and, and being hooked into everything, I notice I'm not as, don't have this sustained concentration. So if I notice that even in myself, I have to assume that the young people who are brought up that way are, uh, are affected by this. I, I don't have hard evidence of it, but, uh, but very likely. 
we're just not as we just don't come to these things as innocently because we are struggling with distraction and trying to harness our attention as a 24 7 thing you know what I mean like it's not like we sit down to a tray of chocolate chip cookies and radishes and it's a level playing field because we're all grappling with all kinds of sensory overload and stimuli and failures when it comes to attention parenting has changed too I mean people my generation our parents were very strict and there were strong rules and you know you got slapped if you if you misbehaved and the generation ahead of me who grew up in the 50s, a lot of their memoirs saying "My I, nothing I ever did was good enough. My parents never said a, a positive word to me. Okay, mine wasn't that bad, but it, praise was, was very judicious and, and limited. And somehow in the 80s with the self-esteem movement, parents got the idea that they should never criticize their, their children, which actually isn't even good for self-esteem either, but it's certainly bad for self-control. There was even some some evidence that if you want your children to have good self-esteem, bring them up with, with strict discipline, with standards, and praise them when they succeed and criticize or punish them when they fail. Because then they can base their self-esteem on real accomplishment. They know what real, real success mm. is, and they know that it takes work to get there. I know you've written about that, and for anyone who's wanting to pursue that, they can do a bit of a Google search. I think you've written about teaching kids self-control rather than self-esteem is a better way to go, something along those lines. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I want to move to the economics of sex and particularly female sex drive. This is something that you've written about on and off over the years and I find it fascinating. I've been reading a bit of your work around it and I think listeners will find it equally fascinating. Now, a good launch pad for a discussion all of this is the Victorian era. It was the most prudish era potentially in history and I'd love you to explain why this is so And I think it will lead us into your theory in and around sexual economics. Of course, what was happening then, the Industrial Revolution was really changing the sort of the gender roles and the economics in the Western world. And I think you've explained it in those terms that women were no longer sort of being useful, I suppose you could say, making clothing and, you know, canning the extra food and things like that because that was all being done in factories and so women's roles started started. to change yeah 
Yeah, the eighteenth, the eighteen hundreds, the nineteenth century had what they called the woman question, which what, what are women good for? We weren't ready to send them out into the rough and nasty world of work, where men were were, were still figuring it out, and you know it was was very rough and strenuous there. But in a traditional farming family, men and women had jobs to do, and both were essential. You know, a man, a male farmer without a wife was in a really bad situation, almost as bad as a woman farmer without a husband. And then, as as you said, the Industrial Revolution started with the textile industry. All that spinning and weaving and stuff like that, oh, it was just done by machines. And so it became a matter of what does the woman have to offer a man? Why should why should he marry her? Why does Why does he need her? Of course, there's always a, a sex became a central a part of the appeal. I mean, they tried a few other things. The girls all learned to play the piano. And there's a, a thing in the British Museum, I guess, where Charles Darwin had a debating him with himself whether to get married or not. And he wrote down yeah, the pros and the cons. And uh, one of the pros was you could have music because there was no way to have music in your home unless you had a piano and a woman to play it. The men didn't didn't play the piano. But that wasn't a big attraction. Sex sex was a big one. And so more and more it became that sex was the woman's ticket to the good life. And I think the feminist historian Nancy Cott was the first to make this point, that if if sex is your, your main asset, you need the price to be high. And the way to get the price high, supply and demand, and restrict the supply. So women started putting pressure on other women to hold back and to be less sexual. My crude impression of of men is they will do whatever it takes to get sex and not much more. And so if, you know, if a trip to McDonald's is enough, then he will take her to McDonald's. And if getting married and signing a lifetime commitment to support her is what is needed, then he will do that. So that restricted it. And then what we had when the women started moving into the workforce so they could support themselves, it wasn't as necessary to hold sex hostage. This happened somewhat during World War II when the the men were away in the army being killed. They came back, there was a little bit of a reversion to tradition in the 1950s. But then they said, no, it's still not good. And so women made a more permanent move into the workforce. And so then they could support themselves and were less dependent on the man. So they didn't have to keep the price high by restricting the supply. And that coincided with the better birth control technology. So women could actually you know, have sex without uh, the tremendous danger and burden of pregnancy. And that fueled it. It really changed the way intellectuals thought about sex. There's always the nature and nurture dispute. But when you saw how much sex had changed in just 15, 20 years, it was obvious that the cultural side was very strong. Now, there were even that. Then, then there was some shift back and the women thought being just like men and going around and having sex with a lot of different people wasn't really what they liked either. So in the 80s and so on, there was a bit of a move back to wanting relationships. The struggle continues and things continue to evolve in the mm. present. I think you're probably more in touch than I am with the you know, the latest developments. Although I do I do periodically lead some of the most recent research. One of the surprising findings was researchers always ask people at what point in the relationship did you start having sex? And you know, there's this thing about the third date, but most people said it was more like the seventh or eighth or the tenth date, and women thought it should be later than men, and and, and so on. But starting this century. 
a substantial number of young people say, oh, we had sex before there was a relationship. <laughs> that they got together in some kind of hookup scenario and had sex and I guess they liked it. And so started doing it again. And, and then out of that, gradually uh, a relationship emerged. Hmm. I think the point that you make is that women's sexual drive is subject to what you call erotic plasticity. It's affected by culture. It's affected by economics. It's affected mm -hmm. by a whole range of shifts and actually can shift within a generation pretty fast, whereas men's desire pretty much stays the same. And you right. refer to this as the sort of the mystery of female sexual desire because it does shift and it morphs. And you've then gone on to say that women via their sex drive have shaped men. They've shaped men's sexual preferences but also their behaviour more broadly. That's a really interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Like I'd, I'd never thought about it that way. Okay, well, the women shaping men, that's happened at multiple levels, including probably biological selection. But the male sexual desire is less responsive to social and cultural and situational cues. And that's just something when I read the sex literature, and I, I started without any ideas. I certainly hadn't, didn't have this idea, so I'll just read a whole lot of research and see what patterns stand out. But it was there over and over. The, like, the most educated and the least educated women have very different sex lives. As for men, the difference is much smaller. And likewise, the most religious and the least religious women, very different sex lives. But for men, it's very much little, the same. So women little. who are more educated are more experimental yes. with, with yes. sex than yeah, women who are less educated? Too. Education leads to more sex and more experimentation than trying new things. Religion, of course, pushes in the opposite the way. Toward, toward less. So there are two huge cultural forces and, and we talked about the sexual revolution is the same thing. People, scholars who studied that said women changed much more fundamentally than men did. Men were able to do more of the things they wanted after the sexual revolution than before. But their desires were really kind of the same, whereas women's feelings about their bodies and about sex and about accepting desire and so on had a much more fundamental and sweeping change. Yeah, I think you've talked in reference to sexual economics, as we're calling it, that it actually has fed into a whole range of phenomena that define stuff that we take for granted as humans. Like, for instance, the way that we face each other when we're having sex. That's something that doesn't happen in other with other mammals, for instance. And then the seven-year itch is another phenomenon that comes out of this sexual economy. And finally, even the reason why women have orgasms is also a product of, of all of this. Can you talk further on one or all of those, those okay. ideas? I actually wouldn't say that the economic, which is looking at the marketplace exchange of how men and women decide whether to have sex, and it's a supply and demand thing. Women are the supply and men are the demand. The, 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 some of those other changes probably occurred in, in evolution. Most ape females don't really have many orgasms. Ape couples tend to have rear entry doggy style. So switching it around, all of this, in my recent thinking, that this is part of biological adaptation to make the couple stay together because the human child, by ape standards, the human child, all human child, children are way premature. Baby chimpanzee can start taking care of itself you know, pretty fast, but a human is, is dependent and helpless for, for years. So getting the couple to stay together, including the father into the provider role. This was a key change and getting then the couples to love each other so that they would do that. So the kissing, face-to-face -face intercourse, 
female orgasm. All these things help build the bond between the others. Now, the the sexual economics thing, it was first inspired by this wonderful book in the 80s, Guten Tag and Secord, looking at sex ratios in different societies and, and looking at how that they correlated with sexual norms and practices. And a pretty consistent pattern is that when there are more women than men, which might happen, say, after a war that kills all the men, sex is free and easy. There's premarital, extramarital sex, and so on. Whereas when there's a shortage of women, either because of female infanticide, selective abortion contributed to the, the mismatch in China, all those millions of extra men who will never find a wife, or selective migration in the U.S., the young man, go West young man, they used to say, well, the West was full of young men and there were not very many women. Those places tended to be extremely prudish. And there's a small Because supply. women could drive the price of sex higher. Yes, well, it's a supply and demand thing. If there are more men than women around, then the demand exceeds the supply, which means the price will be high. And if there are more women than men, well, she can't really demand too much. And so that's where the supply exceeds the demand. And so women compete by offering sex more readily. There are even some cool studies showing that women wear more revealing outfits to show off their bodies when there are more women available than men because, you know, they need to advertise essentially to attract to attract others. The market's more competitive. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it sort of parallels a little bit what we kicked off with, the idea of this Victorian era when women were having to actually price themselves in a, in a particular way. They had to use sexuality as yes. the thing that made them valuable when their work was taken away. What I'm wondering is today, of course, we're seeing a flip on that, right? AI and automation is primarily affecting male-dominated work, and we're seeing that particularly in the US, a little less so in Australia where mining and a bunch of other industries still keep men very much gainfully employed. But a lot of the trends that are happening in the world are affecting men more and more, and of course, there are more women now graduating from university. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a whole bunch of things that are happening and we're seeing men being left behind, particularly in those sort of traditional roles that we associate with masculinity. So I'm wondering, given that that's the sexual economy at the moment, what will we see happening? Where will men be able to sort of, I guess, play their part in the supply-demand chain? And what are women doing? What are you seeing happening already, I guess I should ask? You're right. A number of the automation things are now hitting men's industries, whereas, as we said, the Industrial Revolution first replaced a lot of women's work on the farm. Any change, there are winners and losers, and some you know, some men will do well in the new environment and others will, will, will find it difficult. As you say, there's this pattern as well that Women usually want to marry a, a man who's higher status, who makes more money, better educated. Hypergamy. So on. Uh, hypergamy, yes. And men like that too. Men, men marry down. So what it means is as we have more women with degrees, and especially as it comes into advanced degrees, means that the men who do make it to that level will likely have a very good situation that for them the supply of, of women, interested women will exceed to their demand. But you know, women don't marry their secretaries the way the, the men used to marry theirs when men predominated at high levels. 
there is the money aspect. And I think women with advanced degrees might marry a man with a lesser degree if he makes a lot of money. But I'm I'm curious to see how those things will turn Mm. out. I would watch this very closely. I'm watching it across different demographics and age groups. And the hypergamy thing is really going through some shifts, you know, as women don't rely on men for their income. And so their sexuality has has shifted, you know, how they use sex, how they enjoy sex has very much shifted. And I don't know if you've seen the latest Pew results. They came out earlier this year that showed 60% of men under 30 in the U.S., a single and that that's double that of women so you know I think about 30 percent of women under 30 are single and they report that a big shift happened post-pandemic amongst these young people that women emerged from the pandemic fired up to go and prioritize work and study and sort of getting ahead and mm-hmm. reformulating friendships and that kind of thing and men went the other way men have actually gone back into a sort of an insular place they haven't gone out into the world so gaming is is up gambling is up and of course porn is up and so across the board young men and women are having less sex than you know previous generations and that's been widely reported it's a really interesting phenomenon isn't it and then you have these parallel shifts that are happening porn is on the increase and it's affecting the way people are having sex massively and things like choking an SMN sort of experimentation, if sex is happening, it's taking on these extreme, uh, I guess, expressions. I'm wondering if you have anything to say on all of that. I know that's a kind of an odd one, but I know you have spoken about all of these bits and pieces over the years. But it is a trend that is very, very much right now. Yes. One point, the, the sex drive does respond to novelty, and more in men than women, perhaps. But there's some of that in both. And that's one of the tragedies of pornography, perhaps, is that now a 17-year-old young man can see practically everything and what's going to be new and exciting when he's in his 30s. Also, with lack of contact with real women and seeing these strange things, seen reports women say that they go to a man and he wants to act out scenes that he's seen in in pornography which may not correspond to to her interest or, or may not be satisfying to her i'm curious as to whether this generation will have increased problems with sexual response when they get into their 50s or 60s we go back to the victorians when a man could get an erection just seeing a, a woman's long bare skirt. ankle Flip up to a bare ankle, yes. yes. That was it. But you know, nobody gets an erection from an ankle today's America. But if if you did that, then you know, slowly you could do more things over time and produce I think there was a story in one of the early sex books, Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex and Were Afraid to Ask, where a woman said she'd had a good sex life with her husband, but he got less and less responsive and finally he couldn't get an erection anymore. And she was sad and sad for him. And so she went and got a, got a book just to see if there was anything she could do. And she read that if, if she put her hand on his penis, that that might help. So she said she'd never, never done that. But the next night she put her hand on his penis and said, he got harder than he had for years. <laughs> and so there they were, presumably in their 60s. 
and still finding ways to get him excited. She's saying, I'm thinking of trying some of the other things I saw in that book. But that's not going to work for this generation of young men. What, what will turn them on, especially after they've seen all these bizarre things of S&M and the choking? I don't quite understand the choking thing. I, I did write a book on S&M long ago and haven't thought about it for a while. Um, yeah, choking's really big amongst young people because they're seeing it in porn and they're replicating it because they feel that that's the norm, you know. And as you say, when you drive stimulation up to those kinds of levels, then where do you go from there? But you do make another point, I think, in some of your work on SNM, is that it's, and it ties into a lot of the work you've done over many years on the self, and that a lot of that behaviour is about escaping the self, even if briefly. Is, have I got that right? Yes, yeah. It was a surprise for me. I was actually... I was doing research for a book I was going to write on how people find meaning in life. And so I was just kind of looking around for interesting, exceptional, odd cases. And I thought, well, what about those people who like to be tied up and spanked? I bet they have really interesting lives. And I went over to the library, which we didn't have online sources then. And it was pretty obvious right away that this was not going to help with the meaning of life at all. But it was such a challenge for our theories about the self, which is one of my research areas mm. then the self is there to exert control over the world, but these people want to give up control and be tied up and all that. And the self is about maximizing esteem and making a good impression on others and so on. These people want to be embarrassed and humiliated and, and all those things. And of course, the pain pleasure, the self is for avoiding pain and getting pleasure, but these people seem to seek out pain. So I thought this is a challenge to all our reigning theories about the self. And so I tried to figure this out and read as much as I could. It was very frustrating. There's not a lot of research on that to, to go on. But I, I finally came to the conclusion this this is not some weird paradox that I was going to resolve. This is the essence of what's going on here. People are getting rid of themselves. And it is plausible that that, that contributes to sexual arousal, that forgetting yourself, losing self-awareness increases your ability to get into a, a sex scene and they did often report i guess you know the people don't like it don't do it so you don't hear from them you only hear the from the ones who, who seem to find it satisfying mm-hmm. yeah they talked about really intense satisfying blissful experiences some of them tried to well, say it was good for you and helped your mental health i didn't see any evidence of that i didn't see any evidence it was harmful either but certainly the, the claims that this is some kind of positive growth thing. I'm skeptical of that. But it takes, I think there's a lot of reports saying that it takes people into the present, you know, being whipped and that sort of intense pain takes you into the present so you're able to let go of thoughts, distractions and and focus fully on the body. I can can see how that works. I find it so fascinating to be talking all of this right now because there are so many shifts. You know, there's a gender war going on. There is fragmentation there's distraction going on, and so much of it is being played out at the level of of sexuality. You know, sex has always mm-hmm. been almost where a lot of the problems of the world and the challenges and the and the boons of the world are played out. And I'm not surprised to to see somebody like yourself study this and find that it's the female sex drive, it's the female sexual experience that is the malleable one and can actually shift in response to culture, but then also shift culture and shift the yes. gender dynamics of, of a culture. Yes. I will get you to finish, though, on one thing that you do say in some of your work. You refer to the tragedy of male sex drive. What is the tragedy of male sex drive? 
Oh, okay. That's something I've not thought about for a while. But again, I was reading a lot of literature and looking for patterns. It seems like it's not designed to be really content or satisfied, <clears throat> that it, it always wants more. There's a, a study asking young college students, how many people would you ideally like to have sex with in your life if there weren't any concern with laws or disease or anything like else? And the, the average response for the women was about two and a half. And for the men, it was 64. There's a lot of disappointment mm. ahead for those young men. But a lot of both genders had one. I think slightly even more than half of the men. These are probably people who had, had none who were wanting to have one. And it made me think, though, if you haven't had any, you want to have one. If you had one, maybe you want to have three. If you've had six, you want to have a dozen. If you've had 15, you might want to have 30. Someone might have, have hundreds. Whatever you've had, you you want more. It's hard to be content, and also it doesn't go away. Kinsey, in his studies, where he interviewed people in great depth about their, he, he noticed one pattern is that the women's sexual histories would have peaks and valleys. That the woman might be having a great sex life and then would break up with her partner and wouldn't have any sex at all for a year and not miss it, not be a problem, and then find someone else and start happily having sex again. Whereas for a man, if he breaks up with a sex partner, you know, masturbation sets in, if not that same afternoon, certainly by the weekend, or starts looking for hookups or going to, to sex workers, prostitutes or, or, or whatever. So there's this, this, this relentless push for it. I, I taught a, a inter-subdisciplinary class with a couple other professors on sex. And one of the older guys said, you know, he, he went to college in the 50s. And back then, everybody got married right away during college or right out of college because you were just so desperate to have sex. But and that was the only way to do it. Whereas after the, the marriage requirement was dropped, then there's less incentive for men to get married and they go on. Lots of men don't even think about marriage. Like you said, many, lots of single men in their 20s. The 20 to the 20s is kind of the peak sexual age and the Everyone older wants to be younger. Everyone younger wants to be older. <laughs> but then all of that is being turned on its head with this current generation where they're having mm -hmm. less sex than ever before. And right. men in particular well, the are women, missing out on sex. Better, right? The women Correct. are still can't do it. It's, it's the men who find that they haven't achieved enough in life or, or don't whatever. They're not appealing to women. Yeah, the women the in their cohort are dating with men in their 40s, men who are established right. and aren't gaming yeah. and aren't watching porn 24-7. So yeah. as you say, it brings it all back to the fact that female sex drive and where women are at, it's, you know, it's, it's shaped by culture but it's also shaping culture and I suppose part of the tragedy of male sex drive is it is very much driven by where women are at, probably no more so than right now as so much is in flux. I don't know how we got from willpower to female sex drive and the tragedy of male sex drive, but it's been a very interesting trajectory. Roy, thank you so much for this conversation and good luck with wherever you take your next sort of, I guess, deep dive. I'm interested to find out and, and keep an eye on what you're doing. Okay. Well, thank you, Sarah. It's been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it too. And uh, yeah, there's always so little time, so much to learn and figure out, but nothing's more fascinating than, than people. Chatting with Roy, I am a little aware of the essentializing that goes on with any kind of 
conversation about gender. And as with so many conversations about gender today, I do add this caveat post-conversation that when we are talking about sex and gender, I, of course, allow for a spectrum of identities and experiences within that framework. That said, the central idea that female sexual desire is so often shaped by culture and economics is fascinating. And I think it also ties into the changes and considerations we are all adjusting to today regarding sex and gender. The second part of Roy's thesis, that female sex drive then also shapes culture, is equally fascinating. And I'm sitting here trying to digest it all and apply it to the many, many challenging shifts happening for men and women, all of us of all ages, in school, in work, in the bedroom today. The fact is, massive cultural and economic shifts are happening and women, particularly young women, are adjusting as per the Pew research that I mentioned, which I'll put in the show notes, including via their sexuality and their sexual preferences. On Substack, I've explored this a little and about how the majority of young people, for instance, showing up at trans clinics seeking transition surgery are women. So women very much are leading the charge in these cultural shifts. But this research, the Pew research, shows that men are not shifting or rising to the changes themselves. They are slipping backwards, retreating. In the demand supply cycle of sex that Roy talks about, they've kind of left the market system, you know, in many instances it would seem. And my mind boggles to imagine how this will play out in coming years. It it worries me, it truly does. As I was listening to Roy, I was reminded of a Camille Paglia quote, and I couldn't quite remember it, but I dug it up for you just now. Men know they are sexual exiles. They wander the earth seeking satisfaction, craving and despising, never content. There is nothing in that anguished motion for women to envy. It's a strange note, I confess, to finish on, but this is definitely a conversation that needs to be continued here on Wild to better understand what is coming our way, all these shifts and challenges. So stay tuned. I'll speak to you next week. But of course, just as a little community announcement, if you're not already subscribed, um, my Substack is where I'm having a lot of conversations around these themes. And we often in the community, the paid community, we pick up on the stuff that I talk about on the Wild podcast and it goes deeper and there's suggestions and reading lists that we share. And it's also where a lot of the community share guest suggestions. So look, I'll put that link to my Substack in the show notes and hopefully I'll see you over there too. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.